This is the Serious Sita Podcast, Episode 9, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to Serious Sita, Episode 9. This is the podcast for serious Muslims who love the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and want to discover the beautiful life model he left for us to follow. In today's class, we're going to discuss the following topics. The sacred months, the death of Abu Talib and Khadijah, radiallahu anha, the Prophet's marriage to Sa'uda, the pagans become bolder and intensify their persecution, the Prophet begins to look outside of Mecca to relocate, the Prophet goes to Ta'if, and the revelation of Surah Jinn. Stay tuned for Serious Sita, Episode 9. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the this ummah of yours is one ummah, and I am your Lord, so worship me. So the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made a bond of brotherhood between these Muslims, the blacks and the whites and the Arabs and the, the non-Arabs and the Persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor. They were one ummah and they were a magnificent... Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Alhamdulillah, nahmaduhu, nasta'inu, wa nasta'afiru, wa nu'minu bihi, wa natawakul alayhi, wa salatu wa salamu, ala Sayyidina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Does the volume need to go up? Okay. Alhamdulillah. We're going to continue on with our Sira class. First, let me say, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. And welcome everyone to our Sira class. I don't know what number session we're on, but I'm pretty sure we're past 10 by now. Last time we left off, we were speaking about the beginning of the boycott that the Quraysh put against the, the, the families of Banu Hashim and Banu Muttalib, Banu Abdul Muttalib, which also included those Muslims who were unable to protect themselves as well. So that included Prophet Muhammad because he was part of that boycott as well as many other Muslims who were not able to protect themselves or who were too poor to protect themselves or didn't have family who could support them. Now, for this period of time, the boycott lasted about three years, from the seventh year of the mission to the to the um, tenth year of the mission. During this time, the Muslims were not able, the Muslims and the non-Muslims, because there's also... The, fam- the families of Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, who, f- who went into the boycott with him, they were unable to buy food as well most of the time. They had some sympathetic people from amongst the Quraysh who would smuggle food into them. Remember, we spoke of last week that Abu Talib had moved with his family and the, the two clans, Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib, followed him. They moved to a valley outside of Mecca, on the outskirts of Mecca, to protect themselves from the Quraysh. So during this time, they were unable to buy any food because the Quraysh would stop all caravans coming in. 
and eventually whatever food they had stored up would eventually run out. And the only time the people who were being boycotted against, the Muslims as well as Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib, the only time they could actually get any food was during the sacred months. There are, there are four sacred months in the Muslim calendar, and these were also sacred months during the time of uh, the of our Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, even before Islam officially, you know, controlled Mecca. And these were all holdovers from the time of Prophet Ibrahim and Prophet Ismail alayhi wasallam. There are four months, and Ramadan is not one of those months, by the way. There are four months in which they are called sacred months, and we don't really acknowledge them anymore. But they are mentioned in the Quran, and they are sacred months. And we are not supposed to do certain things during the certain during these months, like fight. Or they're supposed to be, if there is any any feuding between Muslims, we should have peace during this time. Or, or we, should, we shouldn't fight, period, whether it's non-Muslims or, or Muslims, unless it's in self-defense. And there's more, you know, tough seer to that, more effect to that. I don't want to get too far into it because I don't want to say the wrong thing. But just know there are four sacred months in the Muslim calendar. During the sacred months, the Muslims and the people who were being boycotted against were able to come out and buy food. But of course... During the sacred months was when people would come to the Kaaba to make their pilgrimage, even those even though they were not Muslim yet, we know they're making pilgrimage all the time. And as most things are in life, when there's a high demand for things, or if there's a certain period of time where there's a high demand for things, the sellers they tend to boost up the price. So when the Muslims wanted to buy food during the boycott, even though they were allowed to buy food during these sacred months when people would come into Mecca to make pilgrimage to the Kaaba, when they would go to buy food, the food they would buy would be ridiculously overpriced. And so they couldn't buy a sufficient amount to take care of their family. Not to mention the fact the other people, the other clans of the Quraysh were boycotting them, so they didn't have that much money in the first place. So they were limited by two means, not having enough money and as well as overpriced food. Now, despite the fact that the entire city of Mecca was boycotting them. Interestingly enough, this whole boycott caused rifts within the clans and the families of Mecca. As we mentioned, everyone was pretty much part of the same tribe, the Quraysh tribe, meaning that everyone is pretty much related. Maybe there's a long chain of family between them, but everyone basically came from the same ancestral parents. So, the Quraysh knew that everyone was related, though they were more tied to their clan than they were to the overall tribe and to the immediate family than they were to the clan. The fact of the matter is people intermarried between clans. So you would have people from within the Quraysh who were from different clans. They would intermarry. And so there, were, there was a whole lot of cross family pollination, so to speak. Basically, everyone was related to everyone else in some sort of way. And so while there were many people who supported this boycott, there were also many people within Mecca who did not support it and who did not like it. And they were very upset and disturbed by the fact that they were starving their own family members. So many of them were very, very upset about that. And it caused rifts. And as the time went on, as the boycott proceeded and continued, these rifts just became wider and stronger and deeper within the fabric of the Quraysh community. Eventually, the Quraysh, there are certain people within the Quraysh who decided to put an end to this boycott. 
The man who started it all, it all was a man named Hisham ibn Amr. He was very uncomfortable at the sight of seeing young children, old people, people whom he was related to. And in fact, as a matter of fact, he was related to Khadijah, the wife of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, And she was also suffering from this boycott as well. He was very upset and uncomfortable seeing these people, seeing his own people go through this go through this torture and this persecution and this suffering. And he would often smuggle food to his aunt uh, during this time. He had never he had, he did not accept Islam up till now. I don't I'm not sure if he accepted it afterwards. I'll have to check on that. But up to this point he had not accepted Islam. He was just moved by pure human compassion. It was not necessarily because he was Muslim and he felt pain for his fellow Muslim. He just felt pain for his fellow human being and also for people who were part of his family though they were part of his extended family. So he began to communicate with certain other people of the Quraysh who also sympathized with him, who also felt that this boycott was wrong, that there was something not right about starving your own family members. Even though you may disagree about what you worship, even though you might disagree about some practices, even though they may not have liked what each other were doing as far as their religious practices, this was family. And Hisham ibn Amr, and he finally made a group of about five people. Hisham ibn Amr and his group of five, they did not like what was happening. And so they formed sort of like a an organization, so to speak, and they went to the precincts of the Kaaba, and they, they and they began to exhort their people, talk to their people, preach to their people, rebuking them and making them feel bad and shaming them for starving their own family members. Of course, there were some people who were against them. Abu Jal, for one, he spoke right back at them and he he would contend with them and they argued back and forth. And so basically the community of Mecca was splitting into these two parties. Neither one of them were Muslim now. Neither one of them wanted to necessarily help the Muslims, and probably all of them would have would not have minded getting rid of Prophet Muhammad in some way. But they did not like the fact there was this group, basically, one group that wanted to end the boycott and did not feel comfortable starving their own family members. And there was a hardcore group, a hardcore either us or them group, Abu Jal and others, who were who were opposed opposed to ending the boycott and wanted to continue it by any means necessary. Eventually, Abu Talib came out to the group while they were arguing back and forth. He came out to the Kaaba and mentioned that his nephew, Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, had revealed, had received revelation that the contract no longer existed. And I'm, I believe I may have mentioned this in the in the last uh, session that the terms of the boycott were written on a contract. And they didn't have paper. They usually most likely had papyrus or parchment. Papyrus is made from a plant material. Parchment is made from like animal material, like leather or from tendons of an animal. Though they didn't have paper like we have now. So most likely it's probably written on parchment. Allah knows best. Sorry, not parchment. Most likely it was written on, it was written on papyrus and Allah knows best. But in any case, Abu Talib mentioned that his nephew had received revelation that the contract 
on which the terms of the boycott had been written and then nailed to the Kaaba. They were written and nailed to the doors of the Kaaba, sort of sanctifying it, like saying, this is now set in stone. We put it on the most holiest uh, monument in the entire Arabian Peninsula. So this is now law. That's how they sanctified things, made things or consecrated things in their time. They will put a, a, a an agreement or a contract on the Kaaba to like sanctify it or make it, you know, make it seem like this is a binding law. They didn't have like a parliament or Congress to pass laws. They just when something was agreed upon, it was just nailed to the doors of the Kaaba to sort of make it strong and firm. And so they went to the parchment to see if to the to the agreement that had been nailed to the Kaaba for the past three years to see if. What Abu Talib had said was was the truth. And they went there and it was true. The entire contract had been eaten by bugs, all except for a part in the beginning that said Bismillah. Remember, even though the Quraysh were pagans, they still believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the part of the parchment that said Bismillah had not been eaten, whereas all of the rest of it all of the other terms that include all of the other the rest of the contract that included the terms of the boycott had been eaten by bugs. And this kind of like was a spiritual revelation to them, a spiritual moment to them where they said, oh, well, this must be the truth. Even though they didn't necessarily necessarily believe in Allah the correct way, they still believed in Allah. And so to them, they took they believed in omens and stuff like that and signs very, very much. So they took this as an omen that the boycott was to be ended and at that point from that point on the boycott ended and that was it for the boycott after the boycott ended the Quraysh did not necessarily end their oppression now they just did not like there was just the disagreement between those who wanted to starve the Muslims out and those who did not and remember it wasn't just starving the Muslims it also starving the boycott targeted Banu Hashim and Banu Abdul Muttalib, most of whom were not Muslim. So for all we know, those people who supported ending the boycott, they may have just wanted to support to stop the boycott because of the you know, there are many people who were still Mushrik, who were still pagans, who were being boycotted against. And you know, the Muslim community at that time was probably less than a hundred. So they may not have even really necessarily cared about all of the Muslims except for maybe those who were related to them. And Allah knows best. The point is that after the boycott ended, the Quraysh did not stop their oppression. They continued on. They continued on with their mission of trying to stop the message of Islam. However, the boycott had weakened those people who were elderly, those people who were very young, and those people who were sick. And of these people were, of course, Abu Talib and Khadija radiallahu anha. Abu Talib himself, he was pushing 80 years old. I believe he was 78 years old. Yeah, he was 78 years old and Khadija was 65. They were both elderly, you know, old by the terms, they're old by our terms now, especially 78 is considered old even by our terms. 65 is not really considered old these days too much, but a person with 65 is still considered elderly. However, in this case, for the Arabs of that time, this was considered old. People didn't normally live beyond 40, 50 years old. And the 
three years, the many months of near starvation, of living on less than subsistent food, took its toll upon both Khadija and Abu Talib, and they eventually succumbed and they both died. But before they died, before Abu Talib died, the Quraysh saw him getting weaker. The Quraysh saw that he was getting weaker and he had entered his final sickness and they could see that he was going to die soon. What they wanted to do, they wanted to make one more push, one more attempt to try to convince Abu Talib to convince his nephew to see things their way, to try to tell him, tell their son, their nephew, his nephew to come around to right thinking and stop causing all this trouble. And let's go back to the way things used to be 10 years ago. <laughs> let's go back to the way things used to be. Abu Talib, he did try to speak to Prophet Muhammad وسلم, about it. But of course, Prophet Muhammad did not listen to any of, of, he did not accept any of their proposals or agreements. And he insisted on continuing on with his mission. And much of this is spoken about this meeting, between this final negotiation, this final attempt at reconciliation between the Quraysh, the pagan Quraysh, and Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Allah speaks about it in Surah Al-Sur. Well, Allah says, "Ba'da'udhu billahi minna shaitan rajim bismillahir rahmanir rahim." Sod wal Quran idhi dhikr bal alladhina kafaru fi 'izzatin wa shifaq kam ahlak kam ahlakna min qablihim min qarnin fanadaw wa la tahina manas وَعَجِبُوا أَن جَاءَهُم مُنذِرٌ مِّنْهُمْ وَقَالَ الْكَافِرُونَ هَذَا سَاحِرٌ كَذَّابٌ أَجَعَلَ الْآلِهَةَ إِلَٰهًا وَاحِدًا إِنَّ هَذَا لَشَيْءٌ عُجَابٌ the meaning of this is sword by the Quran containing reminder. But those who disbelieve are in pride and dissension. How many a generation we have destroyed before them, and they called out, but it was not a time for escape. And they wonder that there has come to them a warner from among themselves. And the disbelievers say, This is a magician and a liar. Has he made the gods one god? Indeed, this is a curious thing. And the eminent among them went forth, saying, Continue and be patient. In your defense of your gods, indeed, this thing is intended. We have not heard of the we have not heard of this in the latest religion. This is nothing but a fabrication. So Allah is quoting the Quraysh, the pagan Quraysh, in their attempts at negotiation with Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This last and final negotiation before Abu Talib died, Allah quotes them as saying, how can you take all of our gods and boil them down into one god? This is such a strange thing. This is so weird. Come on, man. This, is, this doesn't make any sense. But when they saw that Prophet Muhammad could not be moved, 
Allah then quotes him as saying, don't worry, continue defending your deities. This is the Quraysh speaking, that is. Continue defending your your idols. Continue defending the religion of your forefathers. This is something that has been in- intended. This is something that is meant for us to persevere through. This is just for, going to happen for a short while. This guy, he's not saying anything that we haven't heard before. And so they continued on with their persecution and eventually Abu Talib died. In the same year that Abu Talib died, this 10th year of the Hijrah, Khadija anha also died. Now with the death of Abu Talib is spoken of in a famous hadith and I can't find it right now, but I've memorized the basic gist of it and I'll go over it. When Abu Talib was on his deathbed and, you know, about to breathe his last, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu came to visit him, and the whole family were around him. All of his uncles, as well, you know, Abu Lahab, as well as other high high ranking members of the Quraysh, including Abu Jal and others. Prophet Muhammad sallallahu was there. He tried to talk to his uncle and tried to convince his uncle to accept Islam. And he can he kept on speaking to him and said, "Just say, just say La ilaha Allah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Just say La ilaha illallah, and I will use that to make shifa to make." intercession for you in the next life he kept trying to to convince him now his uncle was very weak at this time and there are different interpretations or different discussions about whether he actually accepted Islam or not there are some people who say that he did accept Islam because during this conversation during these last few minute moments of his life Prophet Muhammad bent down close to Abu Abu Talib and he he whispered something in to the prophet but some people say that at that point in time he may have taken his shahada however there are hadiths that indicate that this is not what happened and as far as prophet muhammad was able to know as far as we have from him he did not accept islam and prophet muhammad said that before he died he told his uncle he would continue to pray for him for as long as he for as long as he could he continued to pray for him uh, for as long as he lived However, Allah then sent down another verse explaining to Prophet Muhammad Wasallam that this was not permissible. While Before we get into the verse, while the Messenger of Allah was speaking to his uncle, Abu Jahl was also on the other side. So you can imagine these two guys whispering into this dying man's ears. One is saying, accept Islam, believe in Allah, believe in Allah. And the other one is on the other side of his ear saying, no, don't abandon the religion of your forefathers. Don't leave the religion of your people. Don't leave Al-At and Al-Uzza. Don't leave them. Continue on with what you're doing. Don't die like this. Don't don't let your 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 legacy be that he abandoned his people at the last moment. In the end, it doesn't appear as if Abu Talib had accept, had accepted Islam because Prophet Muhammad said that he would continue to pray for him and then Allah sent a verse correcting Prophet Muhammad or, or letting him know that he could not do that. As Allah says in Surah Tawbah, chapter uh, number 113. مِن بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ أَصْحَابُ الْجَحِيمِ The translation of the which is, 
It is not for the prophet and those who have believed to ask forgiveness for the mushrikeen, for the pagans, for those who associate partners with Allah, even if they were relatives, after it has become clear to them that they are companions of the Jahannam, of the hellfire. And so with this, Prophet Muhammad could no longer ask Allah to forgive him. The most he could do would be to ask Allah to minimize the punishment for Abu Talib. And from what we know, he continued to do that. He made dua for that, to minimize the punishment upon Abu Talib in the hellfire. But he could no longer ask for forgiveness. This goes on to us as well. I believe everyone in here converted to Islam, This is, which is why we're here. Maybe if you haven't, it doesn't matter. If you maybe you haven't converted to Islam, but maybe you have parents or who converted to Islam, doesn't matter. The point is that most of us will, prob- will probably have non-Muslim family members who may die without accepting Islam. Whether those family members were atheists or from Ahlun Kitab or from something else, from this indication, it appears as if it is not permissible to make dua for Allah to forgive them after they have died while associating partners with Allah. And Allah knows best. I'm not going to give a fatwa on that. I really can't. But it appears it is not permissible for us to make ask Allah to forgive those who have died while associating partners with Allah. This period... This year was called the year of grief because both Khadija radiallahu anha and the Prophet's uncle Abu Talib both died. And this was a period of time in which these were two people who the Prophet Muhammad really depended on. He depended on Khadija for not her wealth. I mean, the sister said, May Allah guide our families, and I mean, may Allah guide all of our families who are not Muslim. And even those who are Muslim, may Allah guide us all, guide them as well. But for the um, for Khadijah, the Prophet depended on her mostly for moral support. Her monetary support was secondary, maybe even tertiary. But most important was her moral support. They were married. They had been married for what we say now, fifteen years? No, more than that. I'm sorry. They got married when he was 25, and died when. She was 40, so that's 25 years. Yeah, 25 years. from She was 40 when they got married and 65 when she died. That's 25 years, a quarter of a century. That's a long time for two people to be married. And we already spoke about how much they loved each other. So you can imagine how difficult it was for the Prophet, وسلم, the mother of all of his children th- so far, to now die, especially after such a difficult period. You can imagine him seeing his wife get weaker and weaker during the boycott and knowing that there's nothing he could do to help her, and also knowing that she was only suffering because she supported him, because of her support for him. That's the only reason why she was suffering. You can imagine how difficult it was for him to deal with this. But he had to persevere because what he was doing was the truth. What he was teaching was the truth, so he had to persevere through this. Through, through these three years of boycott, three years of near starvation, and then seeing her die. At one point, she was the most sought after and one of the wealthiest women in Mecca. And now here she was dying pretty much because out of malnutrition, because of her support for her husband. 
and Abu Talib, even though he never accepted Islam. Khadija, he was even more before he get to Abu Talib. It was even it, you can imagine how difficult it was for Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because she actually believed in him, and she believed in him when nobody else did. She was the first to believe in him. She was the first to accept his message. You can imagine the hurt and the pain that he went through at her death. Because not only was she his wife, there's an emotional feeling between them. There's also that loyal that loyalty feeling because she stuck by him. Then there's a religious feeling because in addition to being his wife, she was his sister in Islam. So she, she was a fellow Muslim as well. The way we all feel a certain sadness when we hear of a Muslim who, who, who has died, even though we may not know about them, we may not know them personally, we all feel a certain sadness, a certain acknowledgement that this is the ultimate end for all of us. It was perhaps doubly, maybe even triply so for Prophet Muhammad wasalam, and Allah knows best. And then Abu Talib, who was his physical support, who protected him, who, despite the urgings of his own family members, who went through so much, and Abu Talib was not really wealthy, but he had a high position in the society that protected him. His family, many of them who probably would have withdrawn their support. Look at Abu Lahab. He withdrew his support in a second. The second the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu came with his message, Abu Lahab was out of there. He's like, I'm not part of this. And he cursed the Prophet and said all sorts of evil things about him. And actually abandoned his family even during the boycott. Had Abu Talib been the head of the family, who knows what would have happened? I'm sorry, had Abu Lahab been the head of the family, who knows what would have happened? But Allah made it so that Abu Talib was the head of the family. And Abu Talib put his reputation, he put his wealth, he put his status, and he put his honor on the line to protect his nephew. And so now the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu did not have any more physical or monetary support. But there is wisdom in this. The wisdom in these two deaths of these two important people was that it teaches the Prophet and teaches all of us that, that protection only comes, really only comes from Allah. That we have to be patient through hardships and acknowledge that protection really ultimately comes from Allah. Even if a even if your immediate protection may come from an individual such as a police officer or security guard or your family, whoever, whoever you however you receive protection, they are only able to protect you because Allah gave them the ability to protect you. Allah gave them the means to protect you. So ultimately all things and all acknowledgement of this protection must come from Allah. Or our thanks must be directed to Allah, and the protection comes from Allah, even if that pre- if that protection comes through a person or a member of the creation, such as a human being. And also, it teaches us to persevere through difficulties. This was a difficult time for the Prophet. Three years of boycott. Well, let's go backwards a little bit. The death of his wife, and the death of his uncle his two main supporters. In addition to that, three years of boycott. And before that, a year or two of persecution. And before that, a year or two of mockery. So you can see steadily progressing in their attempts to stop Islam, all these difficulties that he's going through. Allah is telling him or or teaching him how to be patient. And this is also a lesson for us as well, to be patient in the face of difficulty. Now, after Khadija died, later on in the year, 
Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was encouraged to marry again. To marry again, and he married a a sister named Sauda. She had all. She was also a Muslim and had actually immigrated to Abyssinia, Ethiopia, with the I believe the second group of people. But she came on her way back. Her husband died on the way back to Mecca. Her husband, her husband died, and she returned to Mecca and stayed there. So Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam married her, and towards the middle, a little bit after the middle of the tenth year of the mission of Islam. Also, with the death of Khadijah, the Prophet's daughter Fatima began to take a more of a leadership role in her family. She became more protective of her father. She became more active in holding the family together and she became more of that moral support that a prophet needed that prophet Muhammad needed until Allah gave him other support and this explains a close relationship between Fatima and her father prophet Muhammad she kind of filled in her mother's shoes after her mother died and she became like a leader of the family and held the family together not that it was going to fall apart or anything like that, but she became like that maternal figure for the family that they needed. Now, the Prophet now had lost most of his support. Both the Quraysh, the Quraysh now, like I said, they were only wanted to end the boycott. They really didn't have any love for Islam in and of itself. So they upped their oppression now. That final negotiation period, it didn't work. They tried to negotiate with Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he didn't accept their terms. His support, his financial support was gone. His physical support was gone. Banu Hashim, there's no, while they couldn't still come out and kill him, you know, maybe they could be convinced. Abu Lahab was there now, so maybe they could be convinced to, you know, hand over Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so they upped their oppression they began to just knuckle down even harder on the Muslims. And they began to do things against Prophet Muhammad Wasallam that they would never do when Abu Talib was alive. And the Prophet of Allah, he could see that there was little hope of convincing enough people in Mecca where the oppression would not turn out to outright persecution or outright holocaust against the Muslims. He knew there was very little chance of converting them at this point in time and so he had to take the dawah on the road he had to take the dawah of islam outside the borders of mecca he had to look for some place outside of mecca where he can continue the dawah continue spreading the message of islam he had to find some group of people outside of mecca because the people of mecca won't say they were a lost cause but at this point in time they were a lost cause there was not much that they could really do there's not much that anybody could really do to convince enough of them of Islam. And so he began to look outside the city of Mecca. And one of the first places he turned to was a nearby village town called Ta'if. And so Prophet Muhammad he decided to go and take the dawah on the road and go and visit Ta'if. And he took his, his freed slave, Zayd ibn Haritha, whom he spoke of earlier. And real quick, there's another reason why there's wisdom in the deaths of these two staunch individuals in the Prophet's time, uh, his his wife and his uncle. Had Abu Talib lived to see through the success of, of uh, Islam, had he lived long enough to see the success, the success of Islam, it is very possible 
that people of today or people of later generations after the message, after the, um, the death of Prophet Muhammad Hassan many years later, it is possible those people who would want to detract from the message of Islam, detract from the, from the, the real truthfulness of Islam by saying that the only reason the Prophet was successful was because his uncle protected him. What do you expect? Of course he was success, successful. He had the backing of one of the most powerful men in the Arabian Peninsula. His father, his uncle, was a leader of the clan that was that was responsible for providing pilgrim to the most holiest to the holiest sanctuary in the entire Arabian Peninsula. Of course, he was success, successful. You can imagine people saying that sort of thing. You can see the same, the things they say about Islam now, even with his with the success of Islam without that protection. You can you see what they say about Islam now? Can you imagine what they're saying back? What they would say had Abu Talib lived? They would have definitely said that the only reason the prophet was successful because he had this powerful clan behind him. So, of course, he was successful. If he didn't have them, there's no way he would have been successful. No way no anyone would have accepted this match of Islam. And so it's the wisdom of Allah that the lives of Abu Talib and Khadijah ended before the completion of the message of Islam. And so now no one can say that he was only successful because he had the backing of the most noble clan in the most noble city in the entire Arabian Peninsula. No one could say that now. Because the message of Islam continued on for many years after that and it was still successful. It was not because of the backing of a noble clan. Now to go back to the Prophet's mission, he went he decided to go on the road, take the Dawah on the road, as I like to say, and he took it to Ta'if. Now Ta'if was not a major city like Mecca. But it had one thing about it that was very important. It had a very powerful tribe there called called the Thaqif tribe. He was hoping that if he could speak to the leaders of the Thaqif tribe, that they would hopefully see things his way, maybe accept Islam, maybe offer some protection. You know, but his main goal was for them to accept Islam. If they could accept Islam, then that would be protection against it'd be like a counterbalance against this powerful tribe of Mecca. If he could have a Another semi-powerful tribe of tribe of Thaqif to help him. May they offer some counterbalance. But the best thing he wanted was for them to accept Islam. Maybe the Muslims could migrate there. Ta'if was a fairly close city. They could migrate to migrate to Ta'if and you know set up shop there and hopefully be able to practice their you know Islam freely in Ta'if. So he took his his uh, free slave, who was like his son, uh, Zayd ibn Haritha. He took him. Actually, I believe he was still called. Uh, Zayd ibn Muhammad at the time. They went to to Ta'if to speak to the leaders there about Islam. Another thing about Ta'if is that it was the it was a temp, it was a center for the worship of the pagan goddess Alat, A L L A T Alat, which me basically means the goddess. So that's what that means Alat. It means the goddess. They had a big temple devoted to her worship. And this is the major center for the worship of Alat. And so hopefully, you know, with, with it being such a, I won't say tourist destination, but given that it had this huge temple devoted to the worship of Alat, you know, it had a, a certain level of influence. Not nowhere near the extent that Mecca had, but it still had a little bit of influence. And so Prophet Muhammad decided to meet with the leaders there and talk to them talk to them about Islam. And he spoke to them about it, but 
you know, they weren't very responsive. They weren't very positive about what he was teaching. I'm trying to find their exact, the exact quotes that they spoke of. Okay, here we go. There are three brothers who were the leaders of the Thaqif tribe. And so Prophet Muhammad Hassani brought the message of Islam to them and he spoke to them. And how do you think they reacted? I mean, they weren't even polite in their rejection. You ever received a, have you ever applied for a job? You received a rejection notice or like, thank you for coming out. You know, we had a lot of people who applied for the same position. We had to make a very tough decision, but we decided to go with somebody else who was more qualified. You know, people receive a, send you a polite rejection. They weren't even polite in their rejection. They couldn't say that, you know, well, thanks for coming out, Muhammad. We like what you had to say, but we don't think this is right for our people right now. But, you know, stay as long as you want, get some rest and, you know, we'll see you next time around. They weren't even like that. They were absolutely rude with him. They mocked him. They jeered him. They made all sorts of crazy comments. One of the brothers said that this, speaking about the message that Prophet Muhammad Hassan brought, they said, this is such an astounding and I'm going to paraphrase. He has such an astounding and crazy thing you brought here. I am going to go to Mecca Pull the kiswa, which is the covering of the Kaaba, pull it down and eat it myself. Because what you're saying is totally out there, man. I'm going to go out, go to go to the Kaaba and tear the kiswa, the covering off the Kaaba, and eat it myself. And another brother said, "You of all people, of all the people in the world, Allah sends this message to you. Really? Come on. I think Allah could have done a better job than that. I think it could have chose somebody better than that than just you. I mean, what's so great about you? And another one said, don't speak to me, man. Don't even talk to me because either A, you're lying. And if you're lying, I don't want to talk to a liar or B, you're telling the truth and you're too high for me to talk to. So one way or the other, we can't talk. Conversation's over. All these things are said in a way to mock the messenger of Allah, to make fun of him, basically rudely rejecting him. And so the prophet Muhammad, he continued to, to teach, knowing that he couldn't do anything with the leaders. He decided, well, let me take the message to the people of Taif. And so he began to talk to the people of Taif to try and discuss with them about what happened. But like most people, most people follow their leaders. And if the leaders weren't going to accept the slam, the people were, weren't going to buy them. And if the people were this rude, I'm sorry, if the leaders were so rude to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu you can imagine how the people were. Something I've noticed in United States uh, public policy or in the United States politics and also even in the smaller community, Muslim massages across the country, the people tend to follow the leader. Back during the, um, just after September 11th, when the leader of the United States was very conservative, very, you know, warlike and hawkish, the general view of the people in the United States were also very warlike and hawkish as well, and always ready to go to war, and they went to war in Afghanistan, and then on Iraq, and then let's go to Iran next, and all these crazy predictions, all these things are going to happen in the Muslim world. The people were following the leader. Then the leadership changes, and you get someone who on the outside is at least maybe not necessarily true, but at least on the outside gives the perception of being more peace loving, at least gives that perception. And so now people are also like, we don't want no more wars. Talking about United States citizens, generally speaking, we don't want any more wars, no more fighting. We got to pull back these wars. It's too much. Our, our country can't handle it. 
people tend to follow the leadership, their leadership. And if you go to different massages, and I can speak definitely here in Atlanta. When you look at the imam of a masjid, the people tend to follow the same way. So if you have an imam who's well-learned, who is very religious, he tends to have a higher percentage of learned people in his community. If you have an imam who has more of an economic, economic or focused or financial focused background, the people in his community tend to also be more businesslike. You have more entrepreneurs there. You have more successful entrepreneurs, by the way, not just being an entrepreneur. You have more successful entrepreneurs. There'll be more business-like, more shops open up around the masjid and stuff like that. We have a have any ma'am who comes from more of a an urban background. You'll see that he also attracts people more of an urban background. People tend to follow their leaders, and the same thing with the people of Taif. They follow their leaders. Their leaders jeered at Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi and they mocked him and they made fun of him. They gave him an impolite rejection notice. The people were just as impolite and just as rude. So that after 10 days of preaching to them, the people of Ta'if, they sent their children, the young children of Ta'if, to pelt, pelt Prophet Muhammad and Zayd ibn Hadith with stones. They sent them stoning them, basically throwing stones at them and chased the Messenger of Allah and Zayd ibn Haditha from Ta'if. They chased them out throwing stones at them and the stones hit their targets many times. Eventually, Prophet Muhammad and his companion, they had to hide inside of a garden. They took refuge in a, in a garden on the outskirts of Ta'if and they were bloody and bruised and blood running all over them and they took refuge here. They're tired from basically running and having stones flying at them and everything. And they took refuge here and they decided to take a rest. While they're resting here, this garden was owned by a man named Utbah ibn Abiyah. And his two sons were attending the garden at the time and they saw Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and Zayd resting in the garden. And so they sent their servant to give him, give them some grapes. You know, they took pity on him. They see this man and his young boy. Uh, well, Zayd at this time was probably more like a young man, maybe in his late teens, uh, somewhere between 18 and 20. See this man and, and this, this older man, this younger man, bleeding, clothes torn, tired, hungry, you know, taking refuge in your garden. So they felt pity for him. They sent their servant to with a bunch of grapes to give to him to Prophet Muhammad and Zayd ibn Haditha as a sign of compassion to help them out. You know, people are still humans, despite the fact that Udba ibn Rabia was a Muslim at the time. He was still human. Well, was his sons, actually. His sons were, were, were still human, and they felt pity for him. So this, the servant came with some grapes to Prophet Muhammad and his companion. And while they were eating the grapes, they began to talk a little bit. And the words that Prophet Muhammad impressed the servant and said, this is not things I normally hear from your people. The way you're speaking, I don't hear this from your kind of people. You, you Arabs, y'all don't really talk like this. So what, what are you about? And in the conversation, the servant mentioned that he was from the city of Nineveh. He was a Christian from the city of Nineveh. And Prophet Muhammad said, yes, this is where Yunus is from. Prophet Yunus, that is. This is the city where Yunus is from. And now the Christian was like, well, really impressed. Like, whoa, hold on a minute now. 
People don't normally talk. People don't in this part of the world don't know about my city. They definitely don't know about Eunice or Jonah as the English word. His name is Jonah. And English word is Jonah. People don't know about this. So now I was really impressed. And they talked some more. And the Christian was the Christian. He, we don't know if he took a slam or not, but he was very impressed. And he, you know, he shook hands. Prophet Muhammad saw me. He kissed his hand and he told him to continue on with his mission and not to give up. It went back to his masters, the two sons of Utbah ibn Rabiah, and they told him, be careful this man, he's going to take you away from your religion. And the servant then told his masters that you will be smart to follow this man. You will be wise to follow this man because what you are following, what you are on right now is ignorance. And then they left the garden, they continue on back on the way back to Mecca. Before they left though, an angel, I believe it was Angel Jibril, came to Prophet Muhammad and asked if he wanted him to destroy the people of Taif. Can you imagine this now? Prophet Muhammad and his and his companion, bloody, bruised, depending on strangers for help. Now an angel comes to him and says, look, these guys rejected you. They hurt you. They tried to kill you. You give me the word, it's a done deal. <laughs> you can imagine, give me the word, it's a done deal. We're going to take this mountain, this mountain, put them together. You ain't got to worry about it no more. They'll be out, they'll be, they'll be out the picture. Now a vengeful person would have been like, yep, get them. Hit them and hit them hard. But Prophet Muhammad said, no, let them go. Perhaps their ancestors, perhaps their children or later generations will believe. And in truth, that is what happened. Ta'if eventually became accepted Islam not too long after Mecca did. Albeit about 15 years later, but still, they did it not too long after Mecca did. And so the Prophet Muhammad and Zayd ibn Haditha, they continued on back towards Mecca and they took a rest in a valley between Mecca and Ta'if. And while they were resting there, Prophet Muhammad began to recite Quran and Allah sent or Allah caused a group of jinn to come by in that area and hear the recitation. And we mentioned the jinn were another creation of Allah. They are another creation of Allah. They have the ability to reason. They have the ability to make their own decisions. They have willpower, unlike the angels who can only obey Allah. The jinn, like humans, they can make their own decisions. So we have jinn who are Muslim, jinn who are Christian, jinn who are Jewish, jinn who are pagans, and just like we have humans who worship the devil, or follow the devil, you have jinn as well who follow the devil, who follow shaitan, iblis. But these jinn were, we don't know what kind, but they were pretty much none of that sort. But anyway, they came through and they heard Prophet Muhammad reciting Quran. And Allah mentions this event where they came and heard from them, from Prophet Muhammad reciting Quran in two, in two surahs. In, in Surah Al-Jinn, which is chapter number 72, as well as Surah Al-Ahqaf, which is chapter number 46. In Surah Al-Ahqaf, Allah quotes what happens. وَإِذَا صَرَفْنَا إِلَيْكَ نَفَرًا مِنَ الْجِنِّ يَسْتَمِعُونَ الْقُرْآنَ فَلَمَّا حَضَرُوهُ قَالُوا أَنْصِتُوا 
The translation of this is, this is uh, chapter 46, verses 29-31. And mention, O Muhammad, when we directed to you a few of the jinn, listening to the Qur'an, and when they attended it, they said, listen quietly. And when it was concluded, they went back to their people as warners. So these jinn, they came, they heard the Qur'an, and they were converted. They became Islam, they became Muslim, Muslim jinn, and they went to back to their people as proponents of the deen, evangelists, so to speak, jinn evangelists. Well, Muslim evangelist, that is. They said, continuing on with a with a passage, they said, Our people, indeed we have heard a book revealed after Moses, confirming what was before it, which guides to the truth and to a straight path. O our people, respond to the messenger of Allah and believe in him, and believe in him. Allah will forgive you for your sins and protect you from a painful punishment. Then Allah goes further in Surah to Jinn, which was revealed at the same time. Now Allah lets Prophet Muhammad know about what happened with the jinn. We're going to go now to chapter 72, verse 1 through 7. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Qul uhiya ilayya annahu stama'a nafarum minal jinni faqalu inna sami'ana qur'anan ajaba. Yahdi ilor rushdi faaman nabi Walan nushri kambi robina ahada Wanahu taala jaddu robina matta hoda sohibatao wala walada Wanahu taala jaddu robina matta hoda sohibatao wala walada وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ يَقُولُ سَفِيهُنَا عَلَى اللَّهِ شَطَطَا وَأَنَّا ظَنَنَّا أَنْ لَنْ تَقُولَ الْإِنْسُ وَالْجِنُّ عَلَى اللَّهِ كَذِبًا وَأَنَّهُ كَانَ رِجَالٌ مِنَ الْإِنْسِ يَعُوذُونَ بِرِجَالٍ مِنَ الْجِنِّ فَزَادُوهُمْ رَحَقًا وَأَنَّهُمْ ظَنُّوا كَمَا ظَنَنْتُمْ أَنْ لَنْ يَبْعَثَ اللَّهُ أَحَدًا The translation of this is Say, O Muhammad, it has been revealed to me that a group of the jinn listened and said, Indeed, we have heard an amazing Qur'an. It guides to the right course and we have believed in it. We will never associate with our Lord anyone. And it teaches that exalted is the nobleness of our Lord. He has not taken a wife or a son. And that our foolish ones have been saying about Allah an excessive transgression. And we have thought that mankind and the jinn would never say something 
something untruthful about Allah. And there were men from mankind who used to seek refuge in men from amongst the jinn, and so they increased them in their burden of sin. And they thought, as you thought, as mankind, that Allah would never send anyone as a messenger. And so this is the the jinn speaking to themselves, speaking with, amongst themselves about the Quran that they heard. And Allah gave the message of Prophet Muhammad SAW, or foreign Prophet Muhammad SAW, that of what happened. This was a sort of like consolation. Allah knows best, but this may have really consoled him in the fact that his message was the truth. There will always be people who will strive upon the truth. Sometimes they may come from humans and some they may come from the jinn. But truth is the truth and the truth will always prevail. And so even when there are so many people who are against Prophet Muhammad the people of Ta'if, the leaders and the people of themselves, people of Mecca who had boycotted him for several years and were persecuting him, despite the fact so many people around him were against him, were hurting him, were trying to kill him, were persecuting his followers, he was on the truth. And this was further confirmation, though he needed no more confirmation, but further confirmation that what he spoke and what he was delivering was the truth. And we're going to stop here, inshallah. And Surah Ta'if, I'm sorry, the city of Ta'if, the incident that happened in Ta'if, is further further emphasizing the fact that Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and us as well, we have to make, <clears throat> we have to remain patient upon people's rejection of the truth. We do not become angry nor become vengeful when people do evil things out of ignorance. We do not try to seek to harm other people because they do not accept Islam. And sometimes you have to use your best judgment on how to respond to someone else. Sometimes violence is necessary, but more often than not, peaceful peace and understanding and sometimes just patience is better when giving the dawah. Violence is only is only required in dawah when it comes to nations. Islam as a nation trying to spread the message of Islam then violence may or may not be necessary, always depending on the circumstances. As individuals, there is no violence with Islam as far as trying to spread the message of Islam. As individuals, we preach the message, we say the truth, if people accept it, alhamdulillah, if they do not, mashallah. La ikra hafiq There is no compulsion in deen. So as individuals, when we're giving the dawah, even if people are hurting us, we do have a right to defend ourselves, of course, but we do not seek vengeance upon people because they do not accept Islam. Vengeance is something that, that may be satisfying to our heart temporarily, but eventually leads to more harm. And had Prophet Muhammad agreed to the angel's suggestion to destroy and wipe out the people of Ta'if, that city would have been gone and their children would have never had a chance to accept Islam. And the people of Ta'if later on became staunch defenders of the religion of Islam many years later. That's going to end for our class today, inshallah. We will continue on next week, inshallah. Um, hopefully, hopefully, we'll be able to get to Al-Isra Wal-Mi'araj, the night journey and the ascension. I was hoping I could get to it today, but time is was not compatible. At this time, are there any questions, Wa'ayakum, about 
either today's class or any of our previous classes. While I do have to get ready for work, if there are no more classes, I'm questions, oh boy. If there are no more questions, we will end here, inshallah. One quick reminder. Remember, we have the new Muslim class. I won't say Muslim class. Basic Islam class on Saturdays from 11 to 12. Inshallah, if you feel as if you need that one, please do so. Also know that Ramadan, inshallah, will be beginning in a few days, in about a week or so, and Allah knows best. Just a reminder to everyone about Ramadan. Quick reminder, I really don't have time to do this, but I've been trying to say this to everyone I, I can. Too often during Ramadan, we focus on trying to build up our prayers during this time. And it is a good thing to try to get in as much worship as you can during the month of Ramadan. It is good to try to make it to the prayer, to Salatul Aisha. Yes, I'll continue during Ramadan, inshallah. I don't, you know, I may, my mouth may be a little dry. You know, I may not sound as wonderfully eloquent as I normally do. I'm not being arrogant, but yeah, I will continue. I have no, I have every intention to continue. And the basic Islam class, while it is most teachers' habit to talk about Ramadan and the fiqh of Ramadan during Ramadan, I am already on a lesson plan. So during the month of Ramadan, I'll answer questions about Ramadan that we can, but I'm not going to focus on the fiqh of fasting too much. I'll answer questions if there if there are any. You know, if I can. But during the month of Ramadan, I'm going to continue on which talk about the fiqh of Salat, inshallah. By saying though, during Ramadan, and this is more or less for men because women do not necessarily have to pray in congregation, nor do you have to pray in the masjid. But for men, especially, let's not try to be Ramadan Muslims where we focus so much on Ramadan but neglect the rest of the year. And especially, it becomes really, really sad when people focus on not just Ramadan, but the last 10 days of Ramadan. And they focus even more on not just the last 10 days of Ramadan, but the last three days of Ramadan. Or maybe just the 27th of Ramadan, trying to catch the night of power or later to You know, it is good definitely to worship during all of these times, by all means. But our worship <clears throat> should not be limited to the month of Ramadan alone. There should be Whatever we do during Ramadan, to a certain extent, it should continue outside of Ramadan also. Obviously, we can't fast, but we can continue making tahajjud prayer instead of tarawih. We should continue doing our zakat or sadaqah that we're doing during Ramadan, continue it after Ramadan. And many people, which is unfortunate, focus on making salat tarawih during Ramadan in congregation, which is once again a good thing. But it is only sunnah. I hate to say only sunnah, but it is only sunnah. It is not mandatory. And speaking mostly for men. However, praying the five daily prayers in congregation, that is mandatory. If you know, if it's possible for you to do so, and if you live close enough to a masjid where you can do so. And praying, especially Satu Fajr and Satu Isha in congregation, is much more rewarding than praying Tarawit in congregation. So let's keep our priorities straight. And try to be well-balanced and rounded out Muslims and not just super Muslims during the month of Ramadan or the last 10 days of Ramadan or the last two or three odd days of Ramadan. However, however extreme we, we may take it, let's be complete Muslims throughout our entire lives. May Allah, 
make all of us able to fulfill Ramadan, get the most blessings out of it, inshallah, and continue with with learning as much as we can about Islam. And may Allah give us the tawfiq to actually practice what we say, because I have to also practice what I preach as well. Ameen. Alhamdulillah, if there are no questions about the class, inshallah, we'll stop here. Subhanaka Allahumma wa bihamdika, nashadu an la ilaha illa anta, nasta ghafiruka, munatubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.